it should be a comfort to know that angels are God's servants on behalf of his redeemed children. That was Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Keep that passage in mind because it's going to come up at the end of our time together today. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. They appear frequently in Scripture to guard and aid God's people. The second thing that we saw was that angels were a powerful example of how we ought to praise and to worship God. That was Revelation chapter 4, verses 8 through 11. Then we saw that angels, the study of angels, serves to remind us that we're engaged in a spiritual battle, the battle of the heavenlies that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter 6. There are evil angels that are bent upon the destruction of the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. They serve also as a warning to us, because even the angels that were close to God sinned. And if angels that had access to the throne room of God can sin, then certainly we could do so as well. So angels serve as a warning. A study of angels should lead us to have a healthy respect for angels, but never to worship angels. And I think that was probably the primary point that I attempted to make last time. We should respect them, but we should never make them an object of worship. And finally, there is an aspect of gratitude that we should see from the study of angels, because God, in his marvelous grace, provided an entire plan of salvation whereby he sent his son to die as a substitute for fallen human beings, but not for fallen angels. So there is this sense of gratitude for what God has done to us. So comfort, they provide an example, they provide a reminder to us, a warning to us. We should respect them, not worship them, but we also should have gratitude for what God has done for us. Millard Erickson put it this way, although there are abundant references to angels in the Bible, the nature of those references is not such to make them very helpful in developing an understanding of, of angels. Every reference to angels is incidental to some other topic. They are not treated in and of themselves. God's revelation never aims at informing us regarding the nature of angels. When they're mentioned, it is always to inform us further about God, what he does, and how he does it. Every reference to angels in the scripture is incidental to some other topic. That's one of the things that makes the, the study of angels a very difficult study. We also saw that John Calvin weighed in on this topic. And speaking of the study of angels and the study of all aspects of systematic theology, he said, let us remember here in all religious doctrine that we ought to hold to one rule of modesty and sobriety, not to speak or guess or even seek to know concerning obscure matters anything except what has been imparted to us by God's Word. And that is a helpful rule to live by. If it's not in the Word of God, it's speculation. And if it's speculation, it's something that's maybe fun conversation around a coffee table or a dinner table. But it's not something that we want to camp on, not something we want to spend our time on. And when I taught this course in outside settings, like at the College of Biblical Studies, this was one of those courses that I always had to say, angelology, I would always have to say this phrase more than any other. Well, we just don't know. There is no passage that tells us that specifically. And the reason for that is every reference to angels in the Bible is incidental to something else. It's not talking about the angels so much. It may be talking about an announcement of the birth to Mary and Gabriel's there doing it, or to Zacharias, or the, the three angels, or the two angels and the angel of the Lord that come and speak to Abraham. But it's not really about the angels. It's about Abraham. It's not about the angels. It's about the destructive power of God in Sodom and Gomorrah. 
The first thing that we saw when we, when we talked about angels in proper is that they are created beings. This is no light point here. It's extremely important, particularly in view of the position that angels hold in the overall scope of our culture today, particularly among people that would call themselves spiritual. We studied this in, first, in our study of 1 Corinthians a few weeks ago, that just because someone calls themselves spiritual, it doesn't necessarily mean that they're a Christian. That word spiritual has a whole different connotation than what it used to. So spirituality does not necessarily mean Christianity, although sometimes in Christian circles we will talk about spirituality because I think we have a context, we have a barrier or a boundary upon the meaning of that word when we do that. So angels are created beings. Psalm 148 Verses 2 through 5 say this, Praise Him, all His angels. Praise Him, all His heavenly hosts. Praise Him, sun and moon. And praise Him, you all you shining stars. Praise Him, you highest heavens and you above the skies. Let, him praise the, let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He set them in a place forever ever, ever and ever, and He gave them a decree that will never pass away. So even the angels were created beings. John 1, 1 through 3 says the same thing in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. We considered that last time. So the application was that angels are part of God's created order. And we don't worship anything that was created. Jesus Christ wasn't created. Jesus Christ was the eternal Son of God. We worship nothing that was created. That would be an idol. That would be making an idol of God's creation, and we don't do that. So while we respect angels, we don't worship angels. The next question we considered, and I'll do it briefly, is when were the angels created? Now, we can't say for certain. But we know that they were created before the earth was created because they were present at the creation of the earth. In Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, where God is reading Job the riot act, he says, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched the measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and all the angels shouted for joy? So we learn from Job chapter 38, verses 4 through 7, that the angels were actually present and shouted for joy at the earth's creation. So when were they created? We can't say for sure. We talked last time about the two ideas. Were they created on day one or before day one? And evangelicals are split on that. I'm not going to go back over that information tonight. But we do know at the very least, at the very least, that they were present at the creation of the earth. Now, what about the nature of angels? Angels are spirit beings. They are personal beings, meaning they have emotion, intellect, and will but also that they have the ability to worship and serve. And sometimes we don't consider the whole idea of personality when it comes to being able to worship. But think of it this way. A horse or a dog or a cat is not created in the image of God, doesn't have personality like we have personality, and therefore cannot worship God in the way that human beings can worship God or in the way that angelic beings can worship God. So, the standard idea of what constitutes the image of God in man may include emotion, intellect, and will. But we should also understand that the image of God in man includes certain capacities. The capacity to think, the capacity to feel, the capacity to choose, 
and the capacity to serve and or to worship. And that's an aspect of angelic beings that is actually shared with human beings. But we, we, we went on to see last time that angels are moral beings. There are two broad classifications for angels, elect angels and fallen angels, or perhaps evil angels. And there is a conflict in the heavenlies between these two groups of angels, and the conflict seems to be led by an elect angel by the name of Michael, who's also the guardian of Israel, and a fallen angel by the name of Lucifer. We know him by his title, Satan or the Devil. So there are elect angels and there are fallen angels. Fallen angels are those who followed with respect to some moral choice that they were given. The Bible's not specifically clear as to what it was, but we know that there were a certain amount of angels that followed Lucifer in rejecting God and rebelling against him. This fall of Satan, at least according to most, although the number might be changing a bit, is mentioned in two passages of Scripture, Ezekiel chapter 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. Now, I must say that many in Old Testament scholarship today are starting to doubt the Isaiah 14 passage. I'm not one of them. Of course, I'm not an Old Testament scholar, but, but not every Old Testament scholar doubts that. I hold that both of those, Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, are references to Satan and his fall. But what we do know, for purposes of this study, this study is not about Satan. We've done that before. It's on tape. I'm going to leave that alone. I don't like to spend too much time on him other than to let you know he's real and that he made a free will moral choice to rebel against God and took a certain number of angels with him, and those are called fallen angels. And at this time, there is a conflict in the heavenlies, a very real conflict. Like I said last time, not like a Tolkien novel. This is a very real conflict in the heavenlies between the fallen angels and the angels who we call elect or those who chose to stay with God. So angels are moral beings. And a moral being is one who can make a choice for right and wrong. A moral being has to be able to discern between right and wrong. And angels are moral beings. Angels are also powerful beings. They are called mighty ones in Joel chapter 3, verse 11. They're called mighty in strength in Psalm chapter 103, verse 20. The great power that angels enjoy is demonstrated in some of the activities that God gives them to do. They're able to bring about blindness. That's Genesis chapter 19, verse 11. Blindness upon men in the city. They influence entire nations. That's Daniel chapter 10. This is one of those that we probably ought to think about more than we do. There are, I am quite certain, very high-ranking demons, fallen angels, and the capitals, the political capitals of every major city in the world. I have no doubt that there are quite a few assigned to Washington, D.C. I'm sure there are some in Paris. I'm sure there are some in London and in Rome and in Almaty, Kazakhstan, or in Mumbai, India, or in Manila in the Philippines. You name it, Kabul in, in Afghanistan. I'm sure that there are angels influencing the leaders of those nations. That's Daniel chapter 10. That shows that they are powerful beings. In Daniel chapter 3, we saw that an angel preserved Daniel and his friends from the fiery furnace. In Acts chapter 12, an angel released Peter from prison. Angels will be used by God to unleash catastrophic events upon the human race. We'll see that that's in the future in Revelation chapters 8 and 9. 
One thing that we know for sure, according to 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, is that the power of angels is superior to the power of man. Yet even though they are more powerful than you and I, they are not to be feared. Why should we not fear angels? Because God is more powerful than angels. We have nothing to fear. Watch. You have nothing whatsoever to fear from any fallen angel, provided you are under God's protective wing. Now, if you, if you willingly stray from that protective wing, then there are passages of Scripture that do seem to say that you're on your own. But under God's protective wing, he who is with us is more powerful than he who is against us. If God is with us, who can possibly be against us? And that includes not just other human beings. That includes not just terrorists from different parts of the world or bad guys here in our own country or the thug out on the street, politicians that may not be acting in the national best interest. The who can be against us also includes all fallen angels. So angels are powerful beings, but they are not omnipotent. Omnipotence is a word that is applied only to God. It's a concept applied only to God. Omnipotence means that God is able to do anything that's intrinsically possible to do. We don't want to get into this silliness. Well, could God create a rock that's so heavy that he couldn't lift? Well, that's not something that's intrinsically possible to do. That's, that's, that's an absurdity. So we don't get wrapped up in that. But only God can do anything that's intrinsically possible to do. If you have your Bibles, I would like for you to turn to one passage tonight with me, and that's Job chapter 1. Job chapter 1 in verses 8 through 12, where we find Satan interacting with God about this man named Job. Job chapter 1, verses 8 through 12. While you're turning there, I'll remind you that Job was a very special person in his day. He probably was a contemporary of Abraham. We can't say that with certainty, but he probably was a contemporary of Abraham, at least within 100 years or so of the birth of Abraham. And Job was the most righteous person of his time. And Satan wanted a piece of him. I want you to see why. what, what kind of attitude this Satan, this fallen angel, had. In verse 8, And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job? Literally says, Have you set your heart on my servant Job? Furthermore, there is no, no one like him on earth, a blameless and upright man, fearing God and turning away from evil. God's not saying that he's perfect. There's only one perfect person who's ever lived, and of course that was Jesus Christ. But he's saying he's a very special person. He's consistent in his own spiritual life, if I could use that term. Then in verse 9, watch what Satan does. Then Satan answered the Lord, Does Job fear God for nothing? Hast thou not made a hedge about him and his house and all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and the possessions have increased, uh, and his possessions have increased in the land. But put forth thy hand now and touch him, and all that he has, he will surely curse thee to thy face. You know what Satan is saying here? He's saying, you know, the only reason that Job's upright, that he's blameless, that he likes you, God, that he says he loves you, God, is because you bless him all the time. Try this, God. Don't bless him. Withdraw your hand of blessing from him. Allow him to go through some suffering. And, of course, we've all read the book. We know the suffering he went through was massive. But allow him to go through some suffering. And what he's going to do, he's not going to love you. He's going to hate you. And he's going to tell you that he hates you. And he's going to get mad at you. He's going to shake your fist. He's going to shake his fist at you. 
And the implication is, just like I did to Saul. I, I think Satan's actually coming in the back door trying to make an excuse for his own behavior, but that's, that's up for speculation. But this is how Satan thinks. The only reason people love God is because God does wonderful things for them. Well, yeah, God does wonderful things for us. He's provided our so great salvation. And I think it's a danger. It's, may I go so far as to say a Satan-like danger? When if something goes wrong, then we turn on God. If he doesn't bless us in the way that we want to be blessed, we get angry with God. That's exactly what Satan thinks. That's what he thinks of us. The only reason we love God is because God does nice things for us. So he says, if you put forth your hand and you'll allow suffering to come his way, he won't love you anymore. And the implication again is, I was right for doing that. And all other creatures would be right for shaking their fists at you and getting angry with you, God. As you know, I'm not a fan of that. I don't think it's a biblical concept. It is reported in the Bible, but it's never endorsed. David, we saw recently, was pretty upset with God for a minute for the scope of one verse. And then the very next verse, he changed his mind and gets back in fellowship with God. Then the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your power. Only do not put forth your hand on him. So Satan departed from the presence of the Lord. That's a powerful verse. I hope you caught it. God says, okay, do whatever you want to him, to him, Satan. But you can't kill him. To paraphrase. There were limits to what God allowed Satan to do. So if there were limits to what God allowed Satan to do, who's the omnipotent one? It's not Satan. It's God. Chuck Swindoll said something one time, and I don't think he was the first to say it, but he says it so eloquently. He said, there's nothing that gets to you, nothing that gets to you that has not passed through the fingers of God first. If it gets to you, he had to allow it. And if he allow it, we may not like it. It may be painful. probably is very painful. That's why they call it suffering. If it wasn't painful, we'd call it something other than suffering. But if it gets to you, if it's gone through God's omnipotent fingers, then he expects us to deal with it and to handle it and to love him through it. Now, it's, of course, it's beyond our subject tonight to see what Job did, but Job came really close to getting really sassy with God. He says, I'm innocent. I'm innocent. Why are you allowing this to happen to me? He came ever so, ever so close to doing just what Satan said he would do. And then, of course, God questioned him mightily, and Job shut up. The rest is history, as they say. So angels are powerful beings, but they are not omnipotent beings. There is a fixed number of angels. How many there are, we don't know. The text says myriads upon myriads. Some people like to say 10,000, translate that 10,000 upon 10,000. Some people try to come up with a particular number for angels. I've never been one that felt comfortable doing that because I think the, the scriptural references are obscure enough that it's not necessary for us to know exactly how many there are, but there are a bunch of them. However many there are, though, it's a fixed number. They do not reproduce. Matthew chapter 22, verse 30. At the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. The Bible also does not assign sex to angels, or gender, rather, to angels. But when they are referred to in the Scriptures, there are typically masculine pronouns that are used. When they appeared in human form, they always appear as 
men. Now, there may be one obscure reference to where they don't, and I can't think of that one right now, but it's so obscure that it's way outside of the norm. But it doesn't mean that they're men. They just appear as a man. And we saw last time that angels have the ability to assume human form and function temporarily when they're on a mission from God. So angels are spirit beings. They, they don't have a physical body. You don't see angels. They are personal beings, meaning they have capacities that include emotion, intellect, will, and service and or worship. They are moral beings, which, they, which mean they can make free will moral choices. They are powerful beings, but they are not omnipotent beings, and they do not reproduce. Well, tonight I also want to discuss something that is on, on the minds of many, and this will probably be the last aspect of our study of angels this time around. We have studied them before, and if you're interested, we have a lot more information on tape about this that we can find for you, I think, somewhere. But what does the Bible say about guardian angels? That seems to be the question that everybody's interested in. Quite frankly, I didn't get a whole lot of questions last time about whether angels were spirit beings, personal beings, moral beings, and whether or not they were able to reproduce. But a bunch of you ask about guardian angels. And that makes sense because we've heard about guardian angels ever since we were little bitty kids. Exactly what's going on in the Bible when it comes to guardian angels. Does the Bible teach that all of us have at least one guardian angel? Well, here are the facts. We're going to go through the facts. We'll assimilate them. We'll synthesize them. We'll, we'll come up with a view, I hope, toward the end of this. And it won't take long. And then we're going to make a very important application as we end our time together tonight. These are the facts. The Bible does not use the term guardian angel. However, a number of early Christian writers affirmed a belief in guardian angels. Unfortunately, that doesn't make it true. That just meant that the early church and on into the years, let's say, 1,000 to 1,200, there were people writing about the idea of guardian angels. Origen was one. Thomas Aquinas was one. Now, Origen was a bit odd in some of his views, but Thomas Aquinas is someone who both Protestants and Catholics hold up as the preeminent theologian of his day. It's a very interesting phenomenon. And both Origen and Thomas Aquinas defended the existence of guardian angels. So the, the term is not used in the Bible, but early, the early church felt like that there were guardian angels. But there's another term that's not used in the Bible, and that's the term trinity. And we don't say that there is no trinity because the term trinity is not used. So just because the term itself isn't used doesn't mean that the concept is not there, that there aren't such things as guardian angels. The question is not whether or not holy angels minister to God's people. They certainly do. I told you a minute ago we'd come back to a verse in just a few moments. But they certainly minister to God's people. We affirmed that last time. We mentioned it earlier today, and we'll study it here in just a moment. The question is more, does every individual, actually there are a few questions, but one of the questions is, does every individual, believer and unbeliever, have at least one angel ministering to them or guarding them at any one time? The reason I included unbelievers there is most, many if not most, would hold the view that Guardian angels minister to children, 
And certainly those children may not be believers at the time they're ministered to there. So the idea being the guardian angel gets that child to a place in time where they're at the age of accountability and can make a choice for Christ or against Christ. But that seems to be the question. Does everyone have a guardian angel? There are only two passages of Scripture that relate directly to this question. And again, these passages of Scripture are incidental to other subjects, but we can turn to them. I'd invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, for one of the two passages. We mentioned that earlier, and I'd like to actually have you turn to that passage now. In this portion of Hebrews, among other things, the Holy Spirit working through the human author, who I wouldn't be so bold as to tell you who it was. I, don't, I, don't, I certainly don't know. I have a theory, but I don't know. But the Holy Spirit is writing this through the human author to demonstrate the, the superiority of Jesus Christ over several different aspects. And one of the things that he's superior over is angels. And in verse 13, But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make thine enemies a footstool for thy feet? The answer is none. There's no angel that has reached that position. So Jesus Christ is superior to angels. And then in verse 14, the, the passage that is germane to our subject right now, Are they not all ministering spirits? He's talking about angels. Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. So we see that there, it, one of the primary functions of an angel, at least with respect to human beings, is to minister to us. And it's not a stretch at all to say that an aspect of that ministering would be to protect us. So Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, Are they not all, speaking of angels, ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. This passage would at least imply, probably more than imply, that the angels will minister to those who will eventually trust Christ. When is this going to begin? When does this protective care begin? Well, it makes sense that it would begin moment of birth, as soon as the baby takes his first breath, and then continue on throughout the rest of that person's life. The passage doesn't specifically say that, but this passage is broad enough that it's certainly not unreasonable to come to that conclusion. It doesn't tell us how many angels are assigned to each individual. It leaves that unclear. So the first of two passages is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. You see why I said that sometimes the study of angels is difficult. We have to look at passages that speak about these issues obliquely. This is not speaking about angels. This is speaking about the superiority of Jesus Christ. But the, the concept of angels is brought into the discussion. Now, the other passage, and since we have the time, I'd like for you to turn there. It's Matthew chapter 10, 18. I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. Jesus is speaking, and he says, See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. This passage affirms that at the very least, children have an angel assigned to them. That's the, what it means when it says their angels in heaven. And their angels in heaven have some sort of access to God, either directly or indirectly, they have access 
to God. Matthew chapter 18, verse 10. See to it that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I say to you that their angels in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. So it affirms that at least children have an angel assigned, assigned to them. That's all we have, my friends, when it comes to the existence of guardian angels. But that's not nothing. It is certainly something. And we can say from Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, that they are ministering spirits, angels are ministering spirits, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation. That's you and me. And then in Matthew chapter 18, verse 10, we know that children, at the very least, children, have an angel that's assigned to them, presumably by the Father himself, that have access in some way to the Father, and they are taking care, they are ministering to children. My view, based upon the limited evidence that we have, and I just gave you the limited evidence, is that there is a guardian angel for every child. That I think we can affirm dogmatically. But it's also very reasonable, and I base this on the Hebrews 1.14 passage, it's very reasonable to assume that they continue that ministry for the rest of, the, of, of our lives, not their lives, for the rest of our lives. So where do we go with this? Where do we go with the whole concept of guardian angels? We've all talked about it. We're working our guardian angel overtime. You know, I'm going to have to thank my guardian angel. Can't wait to talk to my guardian angel when I get to heaven. Can't wait to talk to my guardian angel, see how many close calls I really had. All those are interesting conversations. But we do know that there is a reality, again, at least for children and very, very likely for all the rest of us, based upon the Hebrews 1.14 passage. Where are, we, where are we going with this? For the application, I'd actually like to quote a friend of mine, you know him too, Dr. Robert Leitner, in his text, very fine text, Angels, Satan, and Demons. And he puts it this way when it comes to the application of the concept of guardian angels. When people concentrate on their supposed guardian angels, they inevitably get their eyes away from God. Their angel replaces God. Also, overemphasis on one's guardian angel make it easy to pray to that angel instead of God. And that's the end of that quote. What Dr. Leitner is saying, and Dr. Leitner is, uh, affirms the same thing that I affirm, that every child has a guardian angel, and it's very likely that every adult does too. But he sees the danger of focusing in upon a guardian angel. To put this together with what we studied last time and what we reviewed quickly as we started today, guardian angels provide service on behalf of God to us. It all comes from God. When we pray, we should never even be tempted to pray to our guardian angel because it's the Father that's actually providing that protection for us. It's the Father that is providing that comfort in times of distress. The angel is an intermediary. Let me see if I could close with an illustration that I think might help because it's strictly within the human realm. God has graciously, you might not think so sometimes, but he has graciously blessed his, the church with people who are gifted to teach the word of God. And you guys, since you are so wonderful, and, and you really are, I, 
I'm so blessed to be your pastor. After a message is given, and if that message has blessed you, oftentimes you'll come to me and say, man, that was fantastic. I, man, I really appreciate it. Boy, you hit it right on the spot there. That was just wonderful. It's just, man, I'm just amazed at the way you did that. And that's about all I do. I wanted to pile it on, but you, I think you see <laughs> I also get emails on Monday, too, so it always balances that out. Never fear. There will be a, one or two that will override all the many positives will be overridden by a couple negatives, so don't fear that I'll get the big head. But you know what I'm honestly thinking when you tell me? I, I am appreciative of the fact that you're here. I, I truly am. But what I know deep down in your soul that you're doing is you're really a, you're, your true appreciation is not so much for the servant of the Lord that is ministering to God to you. It's for the God that we both minister, minister for and serve. If it's working like it should work, God is the one speaking, the God, the Holy Spirit, is speaking to a willing and prepared, I believe, human agent to minister to you. And your ultimate gratitude, I would hope, would be for God. And I appreciate so much the wonderful encouragement that you give. But I know that when all is said and done, your ultimate gratitude should go to God because as Paul has said in our study of 1 Corinthians, I didn't die for any of you. Paulus didn't die for any of you. It's Jesus Christ who died for you. So that's why the ultimate gratitude should be directed is toward God. Angels are servants that serve God so that God's mercy and God's blessing and His kindness and His love is expressed to you as a child of God. And yeah, maybe when we get to heaven, maybe then, we'll sit down and have a nice conversation with the angel and we'll joke and so forth. But our ultimate gratitude should always be upon the God who sent the angel to minister to us in the first place. You see, that's the application. So bottom line to our two-week study on angels, yes, angels exist. They are created beings and servants of God, just like you and just like me. They should be respected but never revered and never worshipped. All gratitude, all thanksgiving for the ministry that angels have on God's behalf to us should be directed for God himself.